The Royal Hospital Kilmainham stands on the site of the 7th century early Christian settlement of Kilmainham, from which the area of Kilmainham derives its name. And in 1174, Strongbow developed the site, replacing the Christian settlement with a medieval hospital and a monastery of the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem, Knights Hospitalier. And with the dissolution of the monasteries under the rule of Henry VIII between 1536 and 1541, the settlement was closed and the lands remained vacant until 1680. The Royal Hospital Kilmainham was established and built between 1618 and 1684 on a 60-acre site granted by King Charles II at the instigation of James Butler, First Duke of Ormond. And inspired by Les Invalides in Paris, France then recently opened as Louis XIV's home for his army pensioners. Ormond obtained a charter from King Charles to construct a similar type of building at Kilmainham, a retirement home for old soldiers rather than a hospital. And the building opened its doors in 1684 for the next 243 years. Thousands of army pensioners would live out their final days within its walls. Classic in design and continental in layout, leading architects such as William Robinson, Thomas Berg and Francis Johnson worked on the building, making the Royal Hospital not only a building of distinction, but a starting point for Dublin's development into a city of European standing. I had the opportunity last year when I was in Ireland of having a tour of the uh, area and visiting the gardens and Paul O'Brien of Public Works provided me with a wonderful tour and uh, I asked Paul to tell us a little about the uh, place and where it is in Dublin. Of Military Road. This is the military quarter of Dublin City. So anybody who's a military historian would be very, very interested in this. Not only the Royal Hospital Kilmainham, but also the surrounding area as well. This is one of the oldest areas in Dublin City and dates from the 7th century. There was a monastic settlement here uh, run by a man called Minan. Um, in the Gaelic language, Minan's church or church of Minan is Kilmainan. And that's where the local name Kilmainham come from. It became corrupted over the years. And this monastic settlement flourished. It did very, very well. Uh, the Knights Hospitallers came here with the arrival of the Normans in 1169 and they once again developed this place. And for many hundreds of years later, uh, there was a religious settlement on the grounds here. Uh, with Henry VIII coming to the throne of England, uh, the these monastic settlements in England and Ireland were dissolved and the lands taken by the king. Um, the land here remained vacant for many years and it was in the 16, middle 1600s that the Duke of Ormond, whose house was Kilkenny Castle, he was in exile in France, uh, saw a building called Les Invalides, which was a retirement home for soldiers who had served in the French army. And he thought that this was a very, very good idea. So when he came back to Ireland and his lands were restored by Charles II, he asked Charles II, would it be possible to build such a building? And Charles II thought it was a very good idea. He issued a royal charter giving permission for the building to be built and it was constructed here between 1680 and 1684 as a retirement home for soldiers who had served in the British Army. The architect here, the main architect uh, in the 1680s was William Robinson and he's, once again, the building here, you're standing in a quadrangle, it's 
a little miniature of what is in France. Le Invalide is a lot bigger, but this is on a similar design. And what you're actually standing in is the first modern building in Ireland. So if you take a look at all the other buildings like Trinity College, they're all kind of fortified townhouses, but this is very, very European in its design. Uh, what you have is north, south, east and west wings here, all connected together. Um, the south, east and west wings would have housed the accommodation and the north range which you're looking at here would have accommodated the master's quarters who was the man in charge of the Royal Hospital and the day-to-day -day running, the Great Hall which is straight in front of you here and on the right hand side there was also a Baroque Protestant chapel of that particular time and it's very well designed this is actually classical in design so everything mirrors everything else uh, so how it would have uh, been laid out is the cloisters that you see here uh -huh. and the grounds here this wouldn't have been in cobbles this would have been in grass a lot of it with walkways here so if you know the Irish weather very well if it's lovely and sunny the pensioners could come out here and walk around the grass and get exercise but if it was raining which happens very seldom in Ireland okay <laughs> that you actually would have been able to walk up and down in the cloisters so okay, you wouldn't get wet without actually going outdoors. How the building was laid out was that the invalid pensioners would have lived on the ground floor around here, yeah. okay? Uh, officers in the middle floors and the more agile pensioners who could use the stairways would have been in the dormer windows where you see up there at the top, okay? So very, very well laid out. Now, so at that time, given that this construction was made to deal with retired military or invalid military, from what period are we looking that they would have been in active service? You're looking at, there was a huge problem after the Civil War in England and the Confederate Wars in Ireland in the 1640s into the 1650s, you would have had a lot of aging men who drank a lot and who knew how to use weapons spread out through England and Ireland. So what they really wanted to do was group these people together to really keep an eye on them. The Royal Hospital here could hold between 250 pensioners. It was often overcrowding at times but that's what it was actually built for and this was actually a success because later then they built the Royal Hospital in Chelsea two okay. years later and that's where they got the idea from but this was built beforehand. So then Paul what we're looking at at the moment how much of this is the original structure I would accept the roofing has had to be re-roofed but how much of the core building is the original? It's 100 percent right. uh, even the roof is the original uh, the building was in use from 1684 up until 1927 when the British left here okay. now, we became a free state in 1922 but the British used about five years to wind up operations here uh, the building uh, was taken over then by the military and then our Garda Síochána which is our police force and was used up until the 1950s where it fell then into disrepair. However, in the 1970s and the 1980s there was a major restoration project that took place here. Uh, it took many years to do and they brought the building back. Uh, the Office of Public Works, we look after the building here on a day-to-day -day basis and the grounds and the Irish Museum of Modern Art also have three wings here to display their artworks. 
uh, now when I say original, like, and I said, re I take it they're new slaves because they, when I say re-roofing, they're, yes. they're, they're not original slaves. No, some of them will be uh, the original parts in the roof, yes. but also some of them will be new as well. Right. The bell tower was added later by Thomas Borg in the 1700s. They actually, when they built it in the 1680s, they ran out of money, and then the bell tower then had to be added at a later stage then by Thomas Borg. We also an architect who was involved here was Francis Johnson, who uh, constructed he designed the general post office in O'Connell Street. Okay. He was also involved in works here as well by making little uh, alterations to the building. What's interesting in all that, and you said the architect, you know, we in our modern parlance kind of think architecture in the form that the people go off and study, it's a great new discipline, but it's been around thousands of years and people studied and constructed based on very strict principles. That's correct and many of the architects that would have been involved in this would have actually worked for the British government at the time. They're involved in lots of other buildings in town, Trinity College, as I mentioned the General Post Office, the Customs House and also the Forecourts as well. So these would have been leading architects of their time that worked here as well, as well as those other buildings but also in the Royal Hospital because this was a very prestigious building in its day. When it was built uh, Trinity College wanted to swap with them that the students come up here and the pensioners go into Trinity College. The military, uh, who uh, the artillery, British artillery wanted a swap as well. They had a barracks nearby and they wanted to swap with the pensioners. So throughout the centuries the pensioners had to fend off all these uh, organisations who wanted this complex here for themselves. Now I see a, a distinguishing sundial. Yes. Uh, and it's where a lot of sundials are in the centre of a quadrangle so as they're getting the sun. This is actually up on the, uh, the face of the north. That is the north building. That and, is and, correct. And it would have to be to allow for the sun on the south. That's it. Yes. So quite a distinguishing uh, feature up there. We also have decorations. If you take a look over the doorways and over the entrances here, there are decorations that are all hand carved in wood, which is kind of a military significance here. They were done by two brothers called Tarbury, who are French Huguenots. They were fleeing persecution in France and came here in the 1680s, and they did a lot of the woodwork here. This actually looks like plaster work, but it's all done in wood and all hand carved. So one and of the many hidden features. Of and that is job. original. That's all original, yes. So something like that, which is wood, what is the risk of its deterioration? Very little, because the Office of Public Works, uh, as I said, they carry out all the maintenance here in the building and they look after the buildings very, very well. So there's conservation and preservation uh, uh, plans in progress for all these buildings that we look after. Now, from a visitor's perspective, these facilities are open to the public. It's one of the great things about Ireland. The National Museums are all open free. These facilities also are available if someone comes to the garden, there's no admission charge. There's no admission charge at the moment. Uh, we conduct guided tours of the grounds and the gardens. Unfortunately at the moment the building is, is the north range of the building, which is the historical part of the building, is actually closed for renovations at the moment and will be for the next year or so. But the grounds are open, either people can come on a guided tour with us, uh, OPW guides, or they can walk around themselves. Right. And if they want a guided tour, uh, if do we need to 
start walking towards gardens, or are we still have we more in here? Uh, we can walk. We can, yeah, we can so walk yeah, and talk. So yeah. So if someone, if there's a group and they were coming and they wanted to arrange a guided tour, uh, they would need to connect with you guys. That's and it. And make we'll take them around. Absolutely no problem. We'll take them around and give them a, a guided tour of the of the grounds and gardens or whatever they want themselves. Uh, we, we we can streamline tours for particular groups as well. We also have an exhibition which is over here. Uh -huh. This is the old man's house exhibition. Right. Which deals with the history of the building. We have displays of uniforms and medals and a little bit about the pensioners that were here as well. Should we go in there? Uh, we can go in if you want to. Yeah, we might, we might as well. And there's always benefit in, in getting a glimpse of some of these treasures. Yeah. Uh, so far we've just come in to the exhibition in here and uh, the intent is to display what? Okay. This was set up in 2014 and it gives a detailed history of the Royal Hospital's domain. It's called the Old Man's House Exhibition because that's what the Royal, the Royal Hospital was known locally as, the Old Man's House Exhibition. What we actually have is uh, a very detailed display which takes the visitor through the history of the building here, the grounds and also the area here. We have a detailed map which you see here and you can see the size of the Royal Hospital. It's actually on about 48-49 uh, acres which is a huge amount of land that not only incorporates the building, the gardens, but the meadows and two of uh, uh, Dublin's actually the oldest cemetery which is Bully's Acre Cemetery as well. So there's a massive amount to actually see here. Now when you said uh, the oldest cemetery, one of the a great queries that an awful lot of people coming from abroad have now was genealogy. Yeah. So when you get into the very old cemeteries, do you have much information as regards who's actually buried there? Unfortunately not. For the military we have, but not for the general Irish public. Um, the cemetery, the hundreds of thousands of people were buried in the cemetery because it was actually a free burial ground, but unfortunately no records exist of that. There's a few gravestones and they, the names have been collected on them and uh, are available for people if they're, if, if they're trying to trace someone back but most of the people who would be buried there would be local people uh, from the James Street area, Thomas Street area of the city. So this would have been the city graveyard in effect? It was, it closed, it was in use from the 7th century all the way up until the 1830s when a cholera epidemic shut, shut it down. Um, cholera pits were opened in Grange Gorman and then Glasnevin Cemetery then opened up to take the dead of Dublin City, and which still does today. And Island Bridge in between wasn't it? Or, yeah. 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 So then at this interactive here it gives a great depiction of what the scale is relative to yes. uh, and how much greenery remains within a little core within the city. So again I'll come back to what we said a little yeah. earlier. If someone then, this, these are public gardens so if someone was coming up here and wanted to go for a picnic they're encouraged and yes. welcome. Yes, very much so welcome and to visit the gardens, there are beautiful gardens that we have here as well. Now I see it borders the Liffey. Yes, this was all part of the Phoenix Park. The grounds here were owned by uh, James Butler, the Duke of Ormond, so he used his own lands to build the Royal Hospital Kamenamon and it was all part of the Phoenix Park as you know which is the largest enclosed park in Europe which also belonged to James Butler and it was only separated by the river Liffey. Uh, it later became more separated when Houston Station was built in the 1830s, 1840s, which made the area much smaller. The other thing I noticed is that it was walled. 
Uh, yes. or, or is that just it? But there wa- it was walled in its it, day. It, it was in its day, yes, and, and it still is to a certain extent today walled as well. Right, and when you look at this, you get a sense of that it is modelled on the lines of what would have been a French garden. Exactly. Once again, all classical in design. The gardens itself. Um, we can explain, we'll talk a little bit about that when we go out there, but once again, it's French in design as well. Right, right. So the artifacts that you have here, um, you've been able to gather uh, yes. from when the, because the place has been operational in one way or another in continuity since it was built. Correct. Uh, the, the building here and the artifacts that we have were left behind by the British. Right. Um, we have displays here of uniforms, of medals, and also of the food that the pensioners would have eaten. They were very, very well looked after here as well. They would have got a ration of beer, which was distributed in this blackjack that we have here, named after Cromwell's horse. It would have been full of beer. And what's very interesting, when you look at the, the minutes of meetings that were held here, that the pensioners con- uh, continuously wanted to open their own brewery, which was refused. But you can imagine the amount of beer that <laughs> 250 plus pensioners actually got through on a daily basis right. <laughs> provided by the um, by the hospital correct and so. I see some medals here we have medals from all over the world it was very interesting as I said the, the building has been open since 1684 and what you have are soldiers that would have served in every campaign and every war um, from uh, that the British were involved in all the colonial wars, the Crimean War, uh, World War One. Uh, so it's a huge amount. And, and soldiers not only came from Ireland, there was people here from Wales, Scotland and England as well. And one that I will stand, point out and stand out is one that has the tricolour. Yeah, that's the South Africa medal. Right, right. So then uh, moving along we're seeing it said uniforms, the, the colours and some of the record, uh, actual ledger record books. And we also have a copy here of one of the rooms, so this is what one of the rooms would have looked like in its day. So what I'm looking at is two uh, iron post beds and a fireplace in between. Correct. So they would have made, they'd kept themselves warm. So obviously then there's, as with all the old houses, there were fireplaces all over the place. So Correct. That was the central heating. Yes, and you, you would have had servants here, you would have had uh, other staff members, kitchens, uh, cooks, um, all that here. There were women here, but only women who worked here as, right. as maids, servants, or nurses in the day. There was no women pensioners ever here. Okay. And at that time, you wouldn't have had religious orders as participating in that. It was no, you would have had um, uh, the Protestant uh, ch- uh, chapel was here when it was built in the 1680s, but a Catholic chapel was added later in the... Um, in the 1830s when the Catholics received emancipation for um, to practice, freely practice their religion. So a Catholic chapel was set up there. And there are many Catholic soldiers who served in the British Army. Naturally, naturally. Um, and Catherine Man- that was 18, in the, uh, Daniel O'Connell. Yeah, correct. Indeed. Um, I'm looking at, again, a, uh, an old book here that um, that's a will book and a list of effects where people would have left wills uh, leaving what they had either to the hospital here or to friends or family that they would have had outside. Beautiful. Stunning and, and really, really impressive. 
Um, we, we have uh, people who are interested in genealogy or interested in the military. We have um, digitized some of the books here. So the will book and list of effects have been digitized, uh, the, which you can see here. So that people can read through that. We have ro ro royal warrants as well. We have complaint letters. Right. And the cart letters as well. So William Cart as well, who was here. And are these searchable? So, like, yes. if I go in under the wills, it, it, I, does it come up as a keyboard where at some point I can search? Uh, no, you, you'll actually have to just trawl through it yourself. Okay. It just gives you an idea of what yeah. was here. Yeah. Right, right. So, in a, when the um, season is in full swing here, do you get, actually get much traffic up here? We do. We get an awful lot of people. We uh, people from all over the world yeah. come through here. Uh, once again, it's uh, one of the little hidden gems of the, the Office of Public Works, and a lot of our buildings are actually like that. We know the famous ones like Tulmainham Jail yeah. and Dublin Castle, but this here will be very much hidden, uh, but well worth a visit. Now, while I'm looking at some gravestones, and um, how, when was the last burial here? The last burial here was in the 1950s, and people could still be buried here, and there was one buried, there's three cemeteries down the end, there's Bully's Acre, which is in the middle, we spoke of earlier, which is the oldest cemetery in Dublin City, and the British took two sections, one for officers and their families, and also another for up to the rank of a non-commissioned officer. So that would be privates, sergeants and corporals. What a lot of people don't realise is that though the Royal Hospital here was a retirement home for soldiers who had served in the British Army, it was also where the Commander-in-Chief of the British Army lived in Ireland. So this would have been like a big military base in its day as right. well. Right. Now the reason I'm asking about the uh recently there is a Dublin Fusilier buried in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. um, they traced it back but there is one gravestone for a Dublin Fusilier in the National Graveyard. Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, we have soldiers here from all the regiments right. and that, that you could ever think of in, in, in the British Army. So a huge, huge loss. Right. Um, so we're going to move out the gardens? Yep. So Paul, we've just come outdoors now and we're, we've exited from the quadrangle on the south side. Yeah, this is the avenue here which stretches all the way down uh, to the Richmond Tower at the end here and towards Kilmainham Jail. Uh, the Richmond Tower is not an original part of the site here. That was actually at the Keys uh, along the River Liffey. Uh, it was built as a little bit of a folly, um, but Francis Johnson, the architect, was involved in that. But what they found out was that this was actually blocking the traffic to the newly built Houston station in the 1830s. So Francis Johnson had the building dismantled and brought up here and reassembled and they used it as a gate or an entry point here into the Royal Hospital. How far, well you mentioned Kilmainham, how far is uh, geographically uh, is Kilmainham jail from here then? About five minutes. So uh, the ability like if when this was as a military establishment the ability to go from one to the other should have been necessary was... Yes, and it, it did happen in 1916. Yeah. The general who was based here in the Royal Hospital Command was General Sir John Grenfell Maxwell. Right. He was the uh, officer who was uh, tasked with taking Dublin back from the rebels and also with dealing with them after the rising. And it was from here in the Royal Hospital Command that he would have signed the death warrants for the 16 leaders and the 16 major participants in the 1916 rising. Uh, 15 of them who were uh, 14 of them who were executed in Kilmainham Jail, uh, 
one in England and then one in Cork as well. Right, right. We, what we have here as well, if you take a look at a water tower here, we have a plaque to the bravest man in the British Army, a man called Sergeant James Graham, who was resident here. He fought uh, in the Battle of Waterloo and one of, one of the key soldiers in the defence of Hugomont Farm. Um, Hugomont Farm was in the centre of the battlefield and was a key uh, complex to hold for uh, the Duke of Wellington against the French. Uh, the doors were opened and a close quarter battle took place and Graham assisted Lieutenant Colonel MacDonald in actually closing the, the gate and securing that farm that it was actually held then by the British and was one of the major turning points in the Battle of Waterloo right. on the 18th of June in 1815. Right. He retired here, yeah. he received a little bit of a pension and a gratuity and what was amazing is that he actually had his uh, um, portrait painted which is actually in the National Gallery and can be viewed as well so you can imagine mainly most mostly famous people got their portrait painted uh, he got it painted uh, because he had done this great task now I'm looking at the dates on Irish genealogical records civil and uh, only are available from about 1850 on so because military records tended to be better protected, are there many, are, has there been much military um, archives available to, for people doing research? There are indeed. Most of the British military uh, archives are held at Kew in England. Right. We hold very little here, but we can actually research people if they're buried in our cemetery here as well. So we can do a small bit here, but the majority of it would be in Kew in England. Right, right. So again, what we're looking at, uh, the, this particular structure here, um, is this is a water tower. Right. That what we have here um, that would have been water pumped in. One of the major problems in Dublin at the time and in Ireland was cholera, bad water, and that's why people drank wine, beer, and spirits throughout the day. Uh, so that's what you would have would have actually had. Uh, it's safer than right. drinking the water. Right. Uh, clean water wells were then opened up in the 1800s then to try and provide not only the military here but also the Irish people with clean water. Now, uh, the trees that I'm seeing around about as well, how far back do some of the trees date? Because the I see we're coming to a very large A lot uh, of the trees date, date back to the, the, the 1600s really. A lot of them have been diseased, some of them cut down, some of them have been fallen down, but a lot of them had to clear as well. Right. I'd just like to bring your attention to this here. Yep. This large stump sticking out of the ground, which isn't a tree. This is actually where the former British flag post was. When the British left in 1927, they break or dismantle their flag posts and they either take the flag with them or bury the flag but they break the flag post. Right and this is on the north west corner. Correct. Right. So we've come outside and we're looking now at the northern exterior and you said that the belfry that is there or the tower that was there, that was a later addition. That was a later addition in the early 1700s by the architect Thomas Borg added that on. What you see here in the right hand side, these large windows and the dormer windows at the top, this is where the master of the Royal Hospital, the commander in chief of the British Army would have resided. He could live here with his family and that was a, a posting by the British Army. It could be for 10, 20 years, it could be like General Maxwell in 1916, just for a period of six months. So it changed 
as it went on. And there was a lower level, there was a downstairs. There was, that was where the kitchens were, yeah. were underneath the north range and food would have been then brought up and distributed to the pensioners in the Great Hall. So then as we come, uh, what would be the front north door, which would have been the front door probably, and look, we're looking across at the obelisk in, in Phoenix Park. That's it. The gardens here, uh, when the building was built in the 1680s, the, the gardens didn't really happen. It was mainly the building here. Uh, it was when the Earl of Mead, uh, in the 16, late 1680s, early 1690s, took over as master of the Royal Hospital, things began to move along. And in the years and centuries that followed, what they actually did was they had an enclosed garden here, what you see is five acres. And the garden was used uh, for pleasure garden, also for growing vegetables as well. So it had many changes as the centuries went on. Um, pensioners tended it themselves. Sometimes it did very well, and sometimes it went to rack and ruin as pensioners died. And it was only in the 1800s, the middle to late 1800s, where they decided then to employ gardeners. Right. Now the Earl of Mead in the 1680s, 1690s, was very much wanted gardens here. And you may know his house, you might have heard of it, which is Kilrunnery House, okay, where he has French gardens there as well. Right. So what they did was that this developed over the years. Uh, in, as the bridge pulled out in 1927, the grounds here fell into serious disrepair. The OPW, as I mentioned earlier, came in in the 1970s, 1980s to restore not only the building but the grounds itself. And in the the landscape architect was Sidney Maskell here in the 1970s, and they had to really think about what they were going to do because they didn't have a plan. They did not know what this was like in the 1600s. So what they decided to do was they had to scrape off layer upon layer of years of work and different things that actually happened to get back to like um, um, a, a clean sheet, so mm -hmm. to speak, so they could actually build on something. Uh, they found a book by a guy called Evelyn Waugh, who was in the 1660s, which gave an idea of the kind of garden that we have here now. And what you're looking at is not an accurate historical recreation of a garden. It's actually done in the spirit of late 17th, early 18th century gardens here, specifically French. Right. Okay. Right. And that's what you have here. Uh, we'll make our way down. And the house, the building that we're seeing at the, um, what would be the mirror image of our down the yep. far end, because there's a, a water fountain in the centre yep. or a pond. Um, that house has been done by. Uh, that's a, a garden house or a tea house. Uh, it was believed to be designed by the famous architect Edward Lovett Pierce. And a tea house is actually used for entertaining. So you, people would have been brought down there and had tea, afternoon tea, and enjoyed the gardens here. And the gardens, when they reconstructed, that's original, so that would have been built in the 1700s, that garden house. But when they reconstructed it here, uh, what you're actually looking at are two sections, okay? The first section, which you look at here, is called parterre, and the second section, where you see the hedges and the trees, is called the wilderness section. Okay. Now the parterres, you'll see these in French gardens. What you actually have are the, the holly balls, the cones, the ivy cones there, and the little box hedges all surrounding what we have here. So that's very, very typically French. 
the wilderness gardens that you see down the back now that's not the wild wilderness that we have today it's actually very very well laid out with uh, pleach limes and the, the the hedges here which give a, they're laid out in kind of like a goose foot where it gives a sense of mystery uh, not so much a maze but a sense of mystery where people can go in and out of them and that was a French design that if you were having a party and you are walking along and you needed some privacy that you could just dive into one of these kind of alleyways so to speak and that you could conduct business in there a lot of uh, politics would have been conducted in places like Versailles right. so once again it's a copy of that so Paul when you look around Dublin and you have the likes of Stevens Green or Murrian Square or, or uh, Fitzwilliam Square and there were all gardens in, in those at the time obviously when as the city developed um, and the aristocracy or the uh, upper class the gardens were very much a part of I guess status then also very much so and gardens developed throughout the centuries uh, dictated by climate as well as new plants that were being brought in from abroad and seeds as well that were grown so gardens became a very very big thing from like throughout since the, the monks were here where bees would have been used to pollinate also to, to, to make uh, honey all that sort of stuff is all very very important here and the Royal Hospital took it they use it once again as a pleasure garden but also for medicinal purposes as well where herbs were grown for medicine and uh, uh, things like that and uh, just looking at it I can has this scene ever been or have you been approached where this has been used as a backdrop or scenery in, in the film industry of course uh, there's been loads of, of, of films actually done here television series is mostly uh, but they would have done a lot of film work here even uh, just a, a few moments of, of, of the scene would have been done here so lots of different things because I can see where you could comfortably uh, get a scene here and it's tremendous in the city where you could successfully managed to get a scene and not see a high-rise building or just at certain angles and exactly. you'd be able exactly. to re recreate. Well, film crews have a great way that they can actually cut out anything in the background and uh, you wouldn't know that you were in no. Dublin. You'd still think it maybe you were in France in the, in the 17th century. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned about the climate and how plants were uh, chosen to recognise or, or benefit the, from the climate. So the gardens are open 12 months of the year? They are indeed and they're well worth uh, a visit here when you're in Dublin City because they're very, very beautiful. And from the downtown core, just as I mentioned getting out here and putting it into Google Maps earlier on, uh, if someone was just getting on, on a bus uh, from the downtown core, there's a good bus service? But there is indeed. Uh, it leaves you either to uh, James Street or you can get the hop-on, hop-off buses which actually leave you outside the complex here. And the Irish Museum of Modern Art the Royal Hospital Camino is well known in Dublin City. And if someone is coming up here and they're going to do a walk through and it, there's um, a cafeteria or a restaurant in it? There's, there. there's a restaurant indeed as well as the museum and all, as well as our tours as well of the grounds. Uh, all the facilities are actually here. Car right. parking as well. Yeah, uh, the, and actually the car parking facilities are fantastic. It was, it was good to be able to find them. So are there any other features that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, if we make our way down into the garden. Okay. That's it. So Paul, we're down now and we're on the uh, walks that go through and uh, the nice um, stone 
This is the parterre area of the uh, the gardens, and this is very much a French style. We actually have four gardeners here. A head gardener, a head gardener is Mary Condon. Uh, she looks after the five acres here of this wall garden, but also of the meadow as well, and the other many acres that we have here in the Royal Hospital Canaan. So they do a tremendous job. Uh, what you have here, a small little uh, tunnel that was to bring vegetables, uh, fruit that were being grown into the garden into the kitchens, which is under the north range. So there's a tunnel <coughs> directly from the house out into the garden? Correct, yeah. Alright. And the walls then, these are the original walls? These would be the original walls. They've been repaired over the years. Yeah. They fell down, but they were also uh, added to as well. So and what we're looking at, what, about 12 foot? Yes. There goes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so when you say bring that the tunnel there was for vegetables and stuff like that, within the gardens at the moment, what we've walked past is very much kind of a, a grass garden with hedges, as you say, box hedges. Yeah. But is the garden will we will get to? Are there vegetables still being grown? No. Uh, we have apples and a, a, a few bits and pieces, but yeah. not so much vegetables because they need an awful lot of tending as well. What we actually have is very unusual as well. We have the headstone here of a horse, would you believe, which is buried in the gardens. A horse called Vonalol. Uh, he was 25 years the charge and faithful friend of Field Marshal Lord Roberts of Kandahar. He was a very famous British general who came here uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, he was master of the hospital and also commander-in-chief of the British Army in Ireland for a while and when he was here his horse passed away and this horse had travelled all over the world with him and he decided to have it buried here in the gardens where he could look down on it every day and that would be in the southwest corner correct am I right in that yeah. this, the southwest corner yeah yeah so yeah, because if you didn't know to go there, you you could walk past one. Yeah, ah, people to find the stuff the, as well. They they yeah, <laughs> yeah. So when you say you have the number of gardens you have, uh, like the box hedges are very much uh, uh, European, I suppose. We don't see a lot of them in North America. Uh, our climate wouldn't it wouldn't stand up to it. Um, because when you get down to minus 35 or yeah. minus 40, this kind of environment... Well, the, the, the weather here has changed an awful lot uh, in recent years, possibly due to global warming, where it's becoming wet and warm. Uh, so once again, you can see what's being planted changing throughout Europe as well. Uh, we have herbaceous borders down here, and these are laid out. Uh, these are kind of raised herbaceous borders, which is very unusual. And what it does is it kind of brings the people who visit here an idea of the vegetables that would have been grown here in the um, in, in, in the 1600s and the 1700s when the British military were here. So the gate we have just passed, which is on the west, yeah, that would have been for what purpose? That leads out onto the meadow area, and that would enable the uh, gardeners. They would have had in the day. They would have had a couple of greenhouses out there as well, so they would be able to bring flowers in here and replant them. Uh, I didn't notice, but I'm sure it's somewhere on the whole uh, stables. Yes, there must have been. There was plenty of stables and workshops here as well. So what you would have had, as I mentioned earlier, you would have had a huge staff here uh, looking after horses. Officers could have horses. There was carriages here as well, and they would have been situated beside the main building of the Royal Hospital Tamina. Um are there concerns now in a garden like this with invasive species 
coming in and doing damage? Uh, not so much here. That uh, We haven't come across that here. There's a few diseases affecting the box hedges all right. But thankfully, it'll come, but we haven't been plagued with it as other gardens have. And I noticed, I can't help but notice along the wall, which would be the westerly wall, the wonderful display of a, a variety of ivies and things. That's true, we also have roses as well growing along the walls as well. They're a little bit out of season now, I think, at the moment, but there's many, many um, flowers various varieties of flowers in the gardens and as you can imagine with a garden of this size it's a huge amount of work and I'm seeing some fruit there yep you have apples various different types of plums right. so um, and again I would imagine over the years you'll see a different with climate change fruits that wouldn't have survived previously now are going probably going to become very comfortable to grow correct and uh, I, I think it will continue to change as, as, as we go on uh, so things that would have grown here many many years ago won't be and we'll be getting new fruits and vegetables here right so we're coming up towards the uh, wonderful structure here that is on the north end of the garden yes this, this, is, uh, this is the garden house as I mentioned here yeah. the tea house here uh, designed by Edward Lovett Pierce used for entertainment for many years and then the head gardener actually took up residence here in the 1800s with his family as well so once again giving you an idea of that uh, very small but he would have lived here with his family his wife and his children here as well so he would have attended the garden daily and your board here given a history and then an explanation we do indeed so the panels here just give a little bit of a brief history for visitors to come in they can have a quick read through and it gives you an idea of the layout of the gardens and how it was planned and again this is illustrative of how it's easy to come in here and have your own effectively your own self-guided tour that's correct yes so if someone is on a self-guided tour uh, when they get in up is there somewhere where you pick up your brochure and it'll give you a walkthrough and the explanation or is it a case of as you go around that there are plaques to tell uh, you can actually go around yourself and have a look. Right. Uh, there's, there's no problems there. Plaques are going to be added hopefully in the future, which gives people uh, an idea as well. But also there's a, a, a few leaflets that are out as well, so people can get them and just read themselves. The history of the Royal Hospital Tomainham is widely known. Uh, we give the guided tours and maybe just give it a little bit of a different glance on what's actually going on here. So during the years then, is the, are the facilities used for other things? Uh, I, I noticed some tents up there a short while ago. That's correct. Uh, the, 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 the Royal Hospital Comainum is in continuous use here and has been since the 1680s. Uh, we have many concerts in the grounds here. The Great Hall is also used for um, uh, conferences and banquets and, and some weddings here as well. And we've had one or two funerals as well. So the building is continuously in use as well as the grounds. And is this a kind of a, an office of public works policy for a lot of the facilities that the will make them available if suitable for things like weddings or concerts? Uh, that's correct. Mostly the Irish Museum of Modern Art would use the, the grounds here themselves. The Office of Public Works to use the buildings as well. Um, so it is policy. Uh, once the, the, it, it passes the Office of Public Works Health and Safety and Risk Assessments, that it can be used for a variety of things. As we mentioned earlier on, film crews, it's a, a location for them as well. So as I 
said, one can travel back in time here to the 1600s, 1700s. So if someone is coming, and aside from the uh, GPO or some of the other uh, well-known Kilmainham jail facilities, and they want to find out what else Public Works have in their portfolio, is the Public Works website the best place to find all that information? It would be, yes. For any tourist office, as I said, most of the, the big places are very, very well known, but what you actually can do is you can, you can actually go online and try and find out the lesser-known places, uh, which are, I believe, more fun really and uh, the Office of Public Works have many of these hidden not only in Dublin but throughout Ireland. Indeed, indeed, because I know I've had the uh, pleasure of being in quite a few of the uh, around the country uh, some of the properties and uh, I think I'll probably be heading to Portumna uh, later in the next week and that's one of your properties as well. Yes, we have yeah. a, a lot and as I said it, uh, the history of Ireland is, is wide and varied so I would encourage people to uh, delve into any aspect of it and visit an OPW site uh, that it will uh, give them great satisfaction in finding out a little bit about that area or that building or for that person. So the, given the title of your department, the Office of Public Works, there's a, the, one would lead one to believe well that's where you look after the, the um, structures but you're very much an historian, like it comes across. So, so is there, um, is it that this type of a, a department attracts you, or is it that within the department there is a stream that encourages people to learn, to get involved, to become, uh, take an interest in history, and as a result then there's the function of being guides. The Office of Public Works has many facets to it actually and visitor services is one of them and guided tours I believe are a very uh, unique part of the Office of Public Works and I would encourage anybody who comes to Ireland to actually try and go on an Office of Public Works guided tour of a building or a place or a garden. Uh, myself, I'm a military historian. Right. Uh, the Royal Hospital Command, I mean, this whole area you can, you've you've heard is very military orientated uh, not only back then but still is today really with the National Museum Collins Barracks as well uh, so it's once again it's, it's I've written extensively on the military history of Ireland and in working for the Office of Public Works it has given me a chance to talk to people like yourselves and other visitors uh, about the military history of Ireland and especially the Royal Hospital in Tamina. I must confess at the moment I'm reading a book when, the, when Ireland invaded Canada. Oh, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> part of Irish military history, the Fenian invasion That's it. in the 1860s, 1866. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> the crest that's over the door, we're walking back up to the, the north uh, side of the building. The crest over the door is the crest of the family of the Duke of Ormond. Right. Uh, who once again, his house was Kilkenny Castle. Uh, the family also had it, uh, the Ormond Castle as well. So the butlers really is, 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 is their name. Right. That's their crest. So we've come around the, fu the full way, I think. Yeah. And Paul, I want to thank you for taking the time, but before we do wrap up, you need to give us the coordinates, the website if someone is wanting to get on. Uh, okay, it's Heritage Ireland, right. uh, it's the Office of Public Works website. You can find us on Twitter, the Royal Hospital Kilmainham at opw.ie, and we also have a Facebook page as well, the Royal Hospital Kilmainham. So please be sure to check us out. And when you say Heritage Ireland, it's .ie. That's correct. Yeah, we have to remember that one. We'll 
Paul. Paul Brown, it's been fantastic. It's been a tremendous morning and it's been great learning so much. You're very welcome.